Welcome to the Husband Material Podcast, where we help Christian men outgrow porn. Why? So you can change your brain, heal your heart, and save your relationship. My name is Drew Boa, and I'm here to show you how. Let's go. I'm pretty excited because today on the show, we have Nate Larkin, founder of the Samson Society and the author of Samson and the Pirate Monks, the chief pirate monk himself. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what a distinction that is, but uh, yeah, um, I'm one of many and glad to be on board. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Nate. I remember the first time I was introduced to you was on your I Am Second video. Mm. Yeah. And when I watched that video and you telling your story, something was different. Mm. I've heard a lot of guys share their story of pornography and struggling and being open about some of the things they've done. But the way that you shared, it pierced me. Mm. You weren't pretending to be completely over the things that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. You were vividly specific and descriptive. Mm. And it was impossible not to connect. Wow. Wow. That's kind of you to say. So I was hoping if you could share a little bit of that story with us about where you've come from and how this whole Samson Society got started. And sure. Sweet. Well, I, I'm, I'm happy to do it. And, you know, it's interesting that that video came about when the guys who were had the idea for the I Am Second website overheard me talking in a coffee shop, telling my story for God knows the hundredth time, you know, and said, hey, would you be willing to do that on video? And on the spur of the moment, I did it. We went, uh, you know, a few months later, I got a phone call that they were filming. I went and talked to a camera for an hour and, and then waited another six, eight, 10 months. And then the website launched. And uh, by then, I already knew that my story is far from unique. And one of the things that kept me trapped for so long in shame and fear was I really thought that I was pretty much, if not the only guy struggling this way, certainly the worst. And I was terrified of how people would react if I had told my story. And so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that by the time it came, you know, so let's back up. So I, I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor. So, uh, so I grew up in church where I always excelled in church. I was a good performer in church. And there was, and I, and I certainly was sincere about it in my childhood faith. But, you know, kind of, I was marked out for ministry from the time I was very young because, uh, you know, I wasn't afraid of crowds and I could sing and I could talk and I could really, um, you know, I was told in those days that my first responsibility was to be a good witness, not to do anything that might bring shame upon the name of Jesus. And I was really good at doing that, not just in church, but also in school, attended a public school going up where uh, some of my you know, the, the teachers were very impressed with me and they'd even hold me out as kind of a model to my classmates, which, which really, I don't, they didn't do me any favors. Some of yeah. them gave me, they began to refer to me behind my back as Saint Nate, you know, which, which I actually took as a compliment and meant I was doing my job. And that job became complicated after puberty. 
because suddenly with these hormones surging through my body on a subject, by the way, that I had never been warned about. Nobody had told me that porn even existed. When I first ran across it, I was completely taken by surprise. Uh, and, you know, shocked and disappointed by the way I was uh, attracted to it. He said, nobody told me that every boy eventually sees porn, that every boy instinctively likes porn, because after all, it depicts something that we're wired by God to want. I, I knew it was wrong. I knew that much, but I didn't know why it was wrong. Uh, and, and these days, of course, uh, we have to make the case that porn is wrong, that it's actually destructive. Uh, but at any rate, uh, what, the one thing I knew was I had to hide it. I couldn't bring it up to my parents. We never talked about sex at all. So I had gotten the clear message that uh, sex is something you can't talk about. Um, I, 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 uh, I knew I would risk my standing in the church, my status in the church, maybe even my membership in the church <laughs> as, as the behavior accelerated. And I, uh, so uh, I, was, I felt that I was sentenced to a private battle against this obsession. And, you know, my only ally was my personal savior, Jesus, the one person to whom I could confess. And uh, so I was forever making promises, forever seeking forgiveness. I spent years begging God for a forgiveness that I didn't understand was already mine because I didn't understand the gospel, right? Not knowing that, that forgiveness was an accomplished thing, but that porn was doing me damage. It was injuring me emotionally, even if physiologically, it was affecting my brain in ways that I didn't know. And that what I needed was healing and that a healing was going to come through the body of Christ, right? But I didn't know that. I didn't know how to connect to the body of Christ. This part of me, all, the only, the part of me that came to church, the version of me that came to church was Saint Nate. But there were other versions of me. So there was a monk that everybody loved, right? And that I was convinced was the monk that God loved and cared about. But there was also growing and developing in me this pirate part that I was convinced was all bad. I thought the monk was all good and the pirate was all bad. And I spent a lot of time trying to kill the pirate and be the monk. I uh, was afraid of my shadow. Um, and it, it would be a long time before I came to realize that, that the monk is good, but he's not all good. And the pirate's bad, but he's not all bad. And if we can put the best of both together, now we have a life. Could you say a little bit more about the weaknesses of the monk and the strengths of the pirate? Sure, absolutely. You know, uh, well, the monk has a, a tendency towards smugness and self-righteousness, right? He tends to separate himself from the world. He likes to live kind of in monastic you know, doesn't really know how to cooperate real well with others. Mm -hmm. um, it has a tendency toward, uh, you know, hyper-spirituality that is not connected to the world at large and, and can become, you know, pretty judgmental if he can convince himself. If the monk can, um, can uh, whittle down holiness 
to a small category of behaviors. And if he can behave in those categories and close his eyes to everything else, he can convince himself that he's okay. Um, so th that's dangerous. Uh, and he can kind of, and, and those very things that he's trying to suppress, that he's not even looking at himself, if he sees those in others, you know, he can become really censorious and judgmental. And, you know, the monk, there's, the monk can become a Pharisee pretty easily mm -hmm. if he's convinced he succeeds. And if he fails at that, can just drown in self-hatred and, you know, discouragement, right? And, and forever can work to try to, 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 to climb his way to holiness, you know, to, to pay for his own sins. It can be a miserable existence. And really, my monk was miserable most of the time. I can't say that I ever felt very successful as a monk. I would do for a while, you know, the first week after youth camp. Or, you know, you know, I've made the I've made the thousandth, uh, you know, promise to God that I'm going to abstain and I managed to abstain for, you know, but most of the time the monk was miserable. Uh, the pirate. So the pirate. So he's a scoundrel. He really is. But he doesn't pretend to be anything else. So he's got that going for him. He is who he is. Right. Uh, he's also very adventurous. He's got a lot of courage and he knows how to hang with other pirates. Um, He's not hiding. No, 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 no. So um, if you can put the both of those together and if the monk can be who he is, and I think we can only be who we are if we actually truly trust um, that salvation that's so gracious. If we stop, we, we get out of the performance trap and realize that we can never perform enough, but it doesn't matter. Uh, that has all been settled. Now we can just be who we are. We don't have to hide from our shadow anymore. That shadow can actually become an entree to connection. It can actually, that thing that was, we thought was our greatest weakness can actually become our greatest strength. I thought that if anybody ever found out what I was doing, I would lose any hope of ever being effective in ministry. Turns out my <laughs> ministry started when I got honest. Yeah. Because up until then, people didn't really trust me. They liked me, they admired me, but they had a sense that something was hinky. I was too bright and shiny. People tell me things today that they never told me when I was a pastor. I have friends like I never had before. And I have, I think, I got a lot of affirmation because I was a great performer as a Christian. Whether I was a pastor or whether I was an active layman, uh, I was really good on stage. I got a lot of affirmation, but the affirmation never meant anything because I knew it was hollow. I knew they weren't seeing the whole picture. The monk probably felt great. Yeah, yeah. But the monk also knew if they saw who I really am. See, because I, I, I was carried along, you know, I was preoccupied with my guilt and I didn't realize that I was actually driven by shame. And, and the monk knew that if shame says, if, if I let you see who I really am, you'll reject me. And my monk knew that he had to perform because if people ever saw the shadow, they would reject him. That monk part of me has, has come to learn 
that the way to true connection is letting people see everything. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But it was a long time getting there. It's a long time getting there. I, uh, you know, I started pornography for me. I mean, back in the gosh, back. I, it was actually 1969 when I was, would have been 12, 13 years old that I got my first look at porn, which was a glimpse of a Playboy magazine. Uh, in the 70s, it began to blossom. Um, I got my first look at at hardcore pornography and also moving images it was before video but it was film it, it was a peep show by then i was married uh and i had no idea that that that, that those moving images are far more powerful than the static ones uh that they actually stimulate a part of the brain that cannot distinguish uh virtual reality from actual reality right but, you know, ironically, by then I was married, was, uh, and <laughs> I had been, during my college years, uh, when I was, you know, the head of the, the Christian fellowship on campus, right? And my porn use was, was very, very steady, but well concealed. Um, I, uh, I was banking on marriage to solve the porn problem. And, you know, married a beautiful woman and, you know, all the doors were open to actual sexual experience. I didn't realize I had I had rationalized my porn use during my college years as preparation for marriage, not realizing I was actually poisoning my marriage, allowing porn to create expectations for marriage and to build mental and emotional routines that no woman on the planet was ever going to be able to satisfy or fulfill, right? So I, I, I so I'm married. We've had that disappointment. Um, porn use is back. I'm in seminary, and uh, I come out of class one day to see a poster on the wall advertising a field trip for seminaries and students, co-sponsored by the seminary and a group called Women Against Pornography. They would take us, I was at Princeton Seminary, they would take us into New York City, into Times Square, which in the late 70s was really a very dangerous part of town. It was all uh, sex shops, uh, X-rated theaters, hookers, and hustlers of all kinds. But they would take us on a tour so that we could see firsthand how women are exploited by the sex business. And I thought, this is exactly what I need. I'm a nice guy. I don't want to see anybody hurt. If I can see behind the curtain, if I can see how bad it is, I will surely stop. And uh, we were allowed to take our, our, those of us who were married could take our wives. So I brought Allie along, got my first look at hardcore porn, the kind of stuff any unsupervised eight-year-old can find in two minutes today on the internet. I saw as a married man in the peep show booth with my wife sitting beside me. She put the quarter in. And, uh, of course, Allie was disgusted by what she saw. And in that moment, I was too. In that moment, you know, I could see that it was a sham. But at the same time, as I think I said in the, in the I Am Second video, it was as though somewhere deep inside me a door swung open. And uh, I had found my drug, baby. Never been a drinker, never been a drugger, but I had found my 
drug. Of course, we now know that porn stimulates the same pleasure centers in the brain that cocaine does. Over time, actually changes the brain in the same way that cocaine does. We can see it on brain scans. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't too long after that trip that I started slipping away uh, from home, going down into Trenton, New Jersey, in search of a source for my drug. Now, Allie saw me slipping away from her emotionally. That's what happens. Uh, you know, I think the great danger of pornography is that it offers this, this a virtual, you know, a virtual connection with an imaginary person, which, when we accept it, starts at that moment to erode our capacity to actually form and sustain a real relationship with an actual person. So, uh, Allie always been my best friend. She sees me. I'm 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 drifting away emotionally. She doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't know what's wrong. Something's definitely wrong. She thinks it's her. That sounded like a good explanation to me. I went with that. So I started to buy the, the idea, this rationalization, that I was using porn uh, to give me what my wife couldn't or wouldn't, that I was actually being um, considerate of my wife, not to burden her with my sexual desires. That I could just take care of matters on my own. And it wasn't adultery because no other person was involved. I didn't want to get emotionally involved with anybody. And certainly I would never uh, physically uh, have sex with anybody else because I love my wife. I was actually being a good guy is what I told myself. But, and, and part of being a good guy was not to let her know what was going on because she wouldn't understand so I managed to stitch together those rationalizations and um, the behavior intensified predictably. Uh, so skip ahead a few years. I'm now a pastor. We've planted a church in South Florida, uh, Fort Lauderdale. It's Christmas Eve. Uh, our new church doesn't have its own building yet, but we've managed to borrow a beautiful little building to have our a candlelight service. I have to leave early to get things set up. Allie will follow with the kids. We got three kids by now. And uh, so, uh, you know, on Christmas Eve, it's uh, about 5.30, starting to get dark. It's unseasonably cold for that time of year. It's in the 50s. And as I uh, exit, get off uh, uh, I-95 and head east on Broward Boulevard, it starts to rain. And uh, ahead of me, I see just a lone female figure on the sidewalk. I do what I think, or at least tell myself, is the chivalrous thing to do. And I pull over to offer her a ride out of the rain. I really don't know what she's doing until she's in the car propositioning me. And at that point, programming took over. Um, you know, I had seen some version of this scene at this point thousands of times. And, and, and it, 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 saw, and it hurts me to say, today it pains me to say, that at that point, I didn't see another person in the car. I saw a body. Uh, I saw an opportunity. Never even occurred to me to wonder what would send a young woman out on the sidewalk on Christmas Eve, offering herself to strangers. Yeah, I never wondered what, what, where she was living, what home was like for her. Did she live with parents or with a boyfriend or a husband? Did she, did she have kids? Did she have a pimp 
I mean, that didn't even occur to me. But did she have a name? Um, she wanted 20 bucks. Um, and I had a 20 that was supposed to go in the offering that night. Well, <clears throat> needless to say, that, that 20 never saw the plate. That was the worst night later on. I mean, just the avalanche of shame, regret, you know, during, during the, the service to the sound of the sacred music and, and there and the flickering light of the candles to see, you know, look out and see my wife and my kids and, and the people who loved and trusted me. I just, I, and the worst part was knowing that I was going to do it again. You know, I'm not wanting to, telling myself I wouldn't, promising I wouldn't, telling, praying I wouldn't, and I didn't right away, you know, but eventually I did. And then I did it again and again. Always, I was very careful. I was never caught. But, uh, but I, you know, I despised my own hypocrisy and the stress was enormous. Uh, at one point I wound up in the hospital convinced I was having a heart attack. The doctor, you know, they kept me overnight, ran a bunch of tests. The doctor came in and said, uh, Reverend Markham, uh, you're fine. You seem to be under a lot of stress. Uh, so I woke up on my 30th birthday knowing that something had to give. Uh, you know, big name preachers were being splashed all over the national media with their sexual uh, peccadillos. And... Um, you know, I wasn't famous yet, but I was building a good reputation in South Florida. And to me, the worst thing I could imagine would be to be discovered. So I knew I had to either quit the behavior or quit the ministry. And at that point, there was only one I could quit. So I um, uh, announced my retirement at the age of 30. Uh, Allie was relieved. She thought, you know, maybe it was the strain of the ministry that uh had come between us and maybe she, she would get her husband back. I didn't know what to do, but uh, God took care of me. I wound up in business. In fact, within a year and a half, I was a partner in an engineering firm. <laughs> and uh, even though I've never had an engineering course in my life, um, I could uh, interpret for engineers, communicate for engineers. That turned out to be a valuable skill. And before long, I was making far more money than I'd ever made in the ministry with even less accountability. And so what followed was a very dark dozen years. Uh, reconstructing it later, best of my estimation, I spent uh, $300,000 on porn and prostitutes. Uh, but that is not my great regret. My great regret is that I spent my children's childhood and spent in all 20 years of my wife's life, 20 years of mine, trading my birthright day after day for a bowl of beans. But I fought it until the very end. In the end, I was in despair. In the end, I thought, this is as good as it's ever going to get. Uh, I was always active in church. I loved church. St. Nate could breathe at church. Um, I'd fight my way to the foot of the cross and beg again for forgiveness. And I'd, you know, I'd promise again, you know. Um, 
grasping for, for forgiveness that was already mine, not knowing that what I really needed was healing, and not knowing, you know, how wounded I was, feeling awful. My, uh, and, and the fact that, that God seemingly didn't respond, you know, I found my faith just flickering. Uh, by the end, any faith I had was very much on life support. I was going through the motions. Wanted it to be true, not sure it was. Uh, at any rate, uh, 22 years ago, coming up on 23 now, uh, you know, God answered my prayer in a very unexpected way, the way that I thought would have been catastrophic. Uh, the first step was a move from South Florida to Middle Tennessee. We came up here to be near my son and his wife for the birth of their first child, our oldest grandchild. Uh, so that we could be close to the baby. It was not long after we moved here that, uh, well, uh, we were running out of money. Uh, I had experienced an initial wave of freedom from the obsession. When we first moved, I got out of the familiar environment. Uh, I didn't get back into the behavior. Allie and I are reconnecting. You know, uh, we joined a church. I thought, man, this is it. You know, the problem was Florida. Um, but, but then as we started running out of money, I started to get scared. And when that happened, I, you know, I reached for the only fear medication I'd ever used. So late one night after Allie had fallen asleep, I slipped back out of bed, went back to the office and started downloading porn. By now, we had broadband. By now, I had an endless supply, an endless variety of virtual sex partners. Um, and, uh, you know, time disappeared as it does whenever we're in a dissociated state. Sexual acting out is very much a dissociative activity. Uh, that's why I missed 20 years of my life, was seldom there. I was dissociated. So time disappears. I don't know how long I was there. I probably intended to be there for 10 minutes. God knows I was probably there for three hours. All I know is that one, one second I, I looked up and Allie was standing there. Uh, and she didn't say anything. She turned and left. I quickly shut everything down, followed her back into the bedroom, you know, apologizing, promising. Uh, that was a long night. Uh, but in the end, she forgave me. Uh, you know, I made another promise. We were going to move on. But, uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, Allie found a condom on the floor in the bathroom that I couldn't quite explain. Uh, because by now, you know, I had crossed the flesh line. Uh, porn had uh, taken me places I never thought it would. Uh, massage parlors and prostitutes. If I started using porn, that was where it was going to go. And it had gone there. Uh, and that's when Allie sat me down on the edge of our bed and said, uh, I'm done. She said, I still love you, but I don't like you. I don't trust you. I don't respect you. And I don't think you can ever change. And those are the words that saved my life. I'm told now that four out of every five guys who seek help for sexually compulsive behavior really only do so after receiving an ultimatum for a wife or a girlfriend from a wife or a girlfriend, and, and, uh, and uh, I'm one of the four. It was, it was in a desperate bid to save 
my only adult friendship really and to save my marriage that I did something I'd, I'd been too terrified to do before. And that's actually go for help. And I had kind of gone for help before, but I'd always spoken very carefully in code when I'd gone to pastors or, you know, people I trusted and, and never told the full story because I knew, you know, from what I'd seen happen to other guys and what I'd participated in, that's what bothers me. When other guys have taken the church's rhetoric about grace at face value and had actually admitted what they'd done, you know, I'd participated in, in their so-called church discipline, which amounted to a stoning, you know, and if I wasn't throwing the rocks, I was holding the coats, somehow thinking that maybe that would, you know, Maybe that would convince me. I don't know what it was. At any rate, um, so I didn't go to the church for help. For one thing, I was I, I was hoping for some place in this new church we joined. I didn't want to blow it right from the start. Didn't go to a therapist because I was broke. Uh, I went, to, you know, I went to a twelve step group, and there I found something I had never found in church. I found myself in the safest room I'd ever been in. I heard honesty I'd never heard. Uh, I felt humility I'd never felt before. I felt kindness, empathy. I'd never, I felt love. I heard the voice of Jesus in that room from, from a bunch of Samaritans who didn't even seem to know his proper name, they kept referring to him as a higher power. You know? After a while, I thought maybe I'd been sent there as a missionary. Uh, I tried to Christianize the group for a while. Um, I wanted to talk and not listen. Um, it took me a while to emotionally join the group. I thought I came for the secret information. I thought these people had the secret information, the piece of the puzzle I'd been looking at, the silver bullet, right? Uh, I thought I had an information problem when, when what I really had was a connection problem, right? I had a relationship problem. That's what the doctor couldn't see when he said that you're fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but eventually I learned that, that, that St. Nate didn't need to come to the meeting. In fact, they didn't trust St. Nate. They'd allow him in, but they weren't going to trust him. Um, it it took me a while to learn that, that, um, that even God uh, didn't love St. Didn't love God didn't even like St. Nate because he didn't make St. Nate. He made me. Wow. What was missing from my, from my relationship with God all those years was never God. It was me. What was missing from my friendships and relationships was, ne was, was not of the people, it was me. And if I was willing to bring myself into a relationship, I could have real friends. If I could bring myself into the room, the room changed. Um, and uh, healing would come. Now, I had always asked for, had begged for, expected. I defined healing as an instantaneous thing. God, take this away. I prayed that a thousand times. I screamed it at heaven. Take this away. I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, 
and 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 he and he didn't do that for me because i thought for healing to be miraculous it had to be instantaneous it escaped me entirely that the way a broken bone mends is miraculous but it's a progressive healing the way a cut closes is not instantaneous it's miraculous but it's progressive uh, i've i've come to see now that the healing that i need that i still need i've seen so much healing but there's so much more to go but it is progressive and the same way that god programmed these miraculous healing processes into the human body he's programmed the same kind of process into the body of christ yeah. when we come to the place when we're willing to confess our sins one to another as james 5 16 says pray for one another we are healed and it is a progressive healing and, and by the way i think that verse assumes that whenever we come together, we should have something to confess. Hmm. The day I don't have something to confess is the day, I've be- the, the day I've become a Pharisee. And I think as the Pharisees did, that because I've confined my behavior, the monk always wants to do this. If I'm not acting out sexually, I'm not sinning. I've got nothing to confess. Now, I can start to think that I have a righteousness of my own, that I don't need the righteousness of Christ. I start to think that I am good, and not only good, but better than other people. And I become a danger to myself and others. One of the great gifts of recovery to me was when my first sponsor said, Nate, your biggest problem is you think that sex is your problem. And I looked at him like he was crazy. I'd just done a fourth step that could peel the wallpaper off the walls, you know. Turns out I'm an amateur compared to some of the guys in that group. But, but, um, and he said, well, you know, you, sex is a problem. It's a big problem. You have to solve it. You're not going to solve it on your own. God has to do it, but he's going to use us in the process. But if you think that stopping that behavior is going to fix you and make you happy, you're crazy. If anything, if nothing changes but that, you're going to become more miserable and more miserable to be around and more dangerous than you are today. Because sex isn't your problem. Sex is your favorite solution. It's the medication that you've been using all these years to numb the pain caused by your deeper problems, which, by the way, are common to man. So we're not just talking about sex. I'm not here just to be your accountability partner. I'm not, I'm not interested in being the sex police. Yes, we'll talk about that stuff, but we're going deeper because you have far more healing and far more repenting to do than you know. So we're going to talk about trauma. We're going to talk about uh, self-righteousness, idolatry. We're going to talk about fear, anger, resentment, self-pity, self-centeredness. We got a lot of ground to cover. And as I've been willing to engage in that, the healing continues, right? Yeah. There you go. What was some of the trauma that you had to heal? Yeah, you know, uh, the greatest um, definition of trauma I've heard recently came from a guest on one of the podcasts that I do, the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And this guest described trauma as the chronic 
the chronic disruption of connection. That's good. Now, um, I have some big T trauma in my life. My mother died when I was nine. Uh, my dad remarried a year and a half later to a, a, a woman who was at that point in her life, really not emotionally uh, capable of, but she was appointed as, you know, the caregiver of not just me, but my seven younger siblings. It was a huge job for her. What followed was a lot of emotional and physical abuse. So I have that trauma. I've got spiritual abuse. I've been through some crazy churches. But as I've dug deeper, um, that deeper trauma, that, that, that chronic disruption of connection, I can see that from the time I was born, my parents who loved me and cared for me did not know how to connect with me emotionally. And so um, my, 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 my value was based very much on my performance. And I got that message early. And I got the message that my feelings didn't matter and that there were certain feelings that were unacceptable. And I, and I was completely dependent upon these giant people in my life for survival. And I had to do what made them happy in order to survive. And I learned to do it. So I became uh, disconnected from big parts of myself. So, so yeah, so, so I've got little T trauma and I've got big T trauma. And, uh, but I found ways to survive. And, you know, uh, well, I felt so alone and lonely during adolescence that, uh, you know, that imaginary, all those imaginary sexual encounters, that virtual connection that for a moment felt real, but it was a way for me to go on to the next day and show up at school, right? It was a survival mechanism that to some degree worked. Uh, but, you know, in the end turned on me. Yeah. I like to say that porn is a pacifier. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Uh, and when your heart is broken and you need to fall asleep, you know, if the pacifier is the only thing that's available and if you haven't been taught how to connect, if there's no other way to do it, if there's nobody willing to do it and you don't know how to do it, the pacifier is irresistible. I don't blame myself anymore. I don't blame my parents either. They were doing their best. This is kind of life in a fallen world. Nobody escapes childhood unscathed and there's no perfect parent. Yeah. But we've got to deal with reality now. How do we get to health? How do we get to health? Yeah. What you have created in the Samson Society is a place where a lot of people are taking that journey. Could yeah. you say a little bit more about the vision for brotherhood that yeah. you enjoy? You know, you know, you know, I, I found real brotherhood in 12-step recovery. Uh, and I'm so grateful for that experience. I did have some frustrations now, in the beginning when I wasn't even bringing my real self. I was just bringing St. Nate to the meetings. And I thought, well, oh, I see why I'm here. I'm here to bring the gospel to these people. And so I, you know, I tried to, and they would just, ah. Later on, as I, my recovery experience opened, it revitalized my spiritual life. 
holy smokes, suddenly doors and windows open on the gospel that I hadn't seen. The Bible became an entirely different book, right? Wow. And I wanted to put words to this in 12-step recovery, but I got funny looks whenever I did, right? Meanwhile, I went and told this my story to my pastor. Um, I did so uh, reluctantly, only because I was being pushed to teach a Sunday school class. And my excuse for not teaching a Sunday school class was, I'm a recovering sex addict, and I can't promise that I'll never relapse. And uh, they said, well, go tell the pastor. So I went and told the pastor my story. And uh, that was Scotty Smith. And, uh, and not only did he said, okay, please teach the Sunday school class. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, by the way, I need somebody to fill the pulpit three weeks from now. Are you available? And, uh, and can I start referring guys to you? So I gave him my phone number, right? So the phone started ringing. So now I'm talking with other guys, the pastor is sending my way, and I'm doing with them what my sponsor in 12-step recovery is doing with me, which is essentially I'm being their friend. And I'm talking to them every day, and we're going on walks, and we're sharing our, we're walking in the light as he is in the light. I'm not trying to disciple them. I'm not giving, I'm not taking them through a damn curriculum. Uh, I'm not teaching them how to be successful Pharisees. I'm I'm coaxing them into the light and saying, you can be a Christian and be broken. And there's freedom in living this way. This is how healing comes, right? Uh, and I would take them to, and, and not everybody who came my way was there because porn was a the problem. They come because alcohol was a problem or something else. Uh, so I'd take them to AA or to the, to the SA meeting or to, to an OA meeting. Some of them connected, but not all of them did. And then there were guys who were just anxious and depressed. They didn't seem to fit into, or they had a rage problem. And they didn't seem to fit into the cat. So either they didn't fit into the 12-step category, or they get in a 12-step category and they, they get a 12-step meeting and they didn't know how to integrate their faith and they didn't feel at home. And I really thought, you know, what I've always said is we ought to be experiencing an in the basement of the church, <laughs> you know, we ought, to experience, we ought to be able to experience in the sanctuary what I've been experiencing in the base of the church midweek during the 12-step meeting. Or we ought to be able to, as, so anyway, so we started with 12 guys I was walking with at the time at the urging of my wife who saw that I was making myself the center of these guys' lives and they were all talking to me, but they weren't talking to each other. Um, Let's start a group that isn't a 12-step group. It's a Christian group. We'll, we will carry forward the principles and the practices of 12-step recovery that are helpful, but we're going to explicitly integrate our Christian faith. It's going to be a Christian group. It's not going to be just for sex addicts. We're not going to segregate by sin. Anybody who's struggling with anything, who wants to live a more authentic life, who wants to be able to walk in the light with other people who aren't going to judge or correct them, can be in this group. And, uh, and we're going to concentrate on, on authentic friendship and see what Jesus does. So we started the Samson Society under those principles with, uh, uh, in 2004, in 2007. I, and, and the results were so dramatic. Um, 
uh, and we got so excited that in 2007, we put out a book called Samson and the Pirate Monks, which uh, starts with my story, but includes stories of a dozen other guys. Yeah. That's the, uh, and the second half of the book. So the first half of the book is memoir. The second half is kind of field manual, trying to lay down, explain to guys what we were doing, hoping to inspire them to do something similar. So since then, uh, more than 500 local groups of the Samson Society have started. Uh, three years ago now, uh, some of the younger guys uh, pushed uh, some of us older guys <laughs> into uh, taking meetings online. I resisted. I resisted at the outset. If there's one thing I know for certain, it's that recovery requires relationship. And I, at that point, didn't think that real relationships can form outside of a shared physical space. So, so I said, in much for the same reason, I don't know whether they still have this position, but celebrate recovery. If you're going to start celebrate recovery, one of the things you, one of the, uh, principles celebrate recovery in order to start a meeting was there could be no virtual meetings. Um, and I understand why you'd make that rule. You want guys in the same room. You want real relationship, right? Um, but then these guys introduced me to this crazy thing called Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> and I was freaking blown away. <sighs> and I said, okay, this, this could happen. So uh, we started a nonprofit called Samson House that could finally accept donations and that the money to build the website that we could integrate with Zoom, that we could launch online meetings. So we were up and running and rolling and knew what we were doing when the pandemic hit. And since then, Samson has just exploded. It started to go global. We've got we've got meetings now, not just in English, but in Italian. Italian was the the Italians were the first to come online, I think, because they were hit hard and they had the hardest lockdown. Now we got meetings in Italian, French, Spanish, and Russian. Um, our goal is to have at least one meeting every hour of every day. So that wow. no matter where a guy is on the planet, he's always a click away from friends. We're a long way from that, but but we're gaining ground every week. And anybody in Samson can host a meeting. Everybody's fully authorized. And, uh, and we don't have sponsors in the Samson Society. We have what we call a Silas, somewhat the same, uh, very much the same, although he's not an authority. Uh, I like to say a Silas is, is, is another idiot walking in the same direction. Okay. A guy who still has, you know, he's still making dumb mistakes in his own life. However, when it comes to my life, he has an advantage. He's not in it. He can see parts of my life that he can't see, right? Turns out I give great advice to other guys. And for a long time, <laughs> I drew the false conclusion that I could be my own advisor. Uh, I now know that on my own, I walk in circles, but with another man, I can walk in straight lines. And um, that relationship that I have with a guy who I allow to be my Silas, the guy I'm connecting with regularly, and I'm, I'm giving him all of my life. I'm not just reporting in on my sexual behavior, but I'm telling him every day what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, what I'm doing, and what I'm thinking of doing, right? Um, Can you say that again, those four things? Yeah, what I'm feeling, and, it's, and it starts there. 
It starts there. I, for a long time, I, I didn't realize that I was doing irrational things for non-rational reasons. And I was trying to solve the problem by rational means. Really, I was in this constant tug of war between my head and my heart. And my heart was winning. And I, because I was not connected to my feelings, I'd lost the language of the heart. I didn't know what I was doing. So I was doing things I didn't understand. Right? The best predictor of what I'm going to do today is what I'm feeling. Okay. So learning to connect there, to know. So start with feeling. Now what I'm thinking. Now, and thinking is, is important. It's not that it's, I'm not, I am a thinking person. Uh, but if I'm not checking my thinking with somebody else, it's very easy for me to lose sight of the horizon and start to think crazy things. I can get into a freaking loop. It helps to bounce what I'm thinking off somebody else. Sometimes just saying it is all I need to say. And I can, or sometimes I need to say it and I need my side to say, not quite sure you're thinking straight and give me another perspective. Okay. So feeling, thinking, doing. Doing is really important because I do know that I have an almost boundless capacity for covert activity. I can talk in one direction while walking in another. I need to tell somebody exactly what I'm doing so he can track me. And then, and the last, and the last one is thinking of doing. And by that, I mean, what's that crazy voice in the back of my head telling me I ought to do it. It's that crazy little voice that says, you know, you do have covenant eyes on your phone, but you could get another device yeah. that you that you don't install it on. You know, um, if I, I need to tell, I need to I need to be able to to let somebody know what I'm thinking of doing before, God forbid, I cross the line to do it, so they they can keep up with me on that. So, what a great structure for brotherhood and walking together. Yeah, yeah. What am I feeling? What am I thinking? What am I doing? And what am I thinking of doing? That's the four-point check-in that, that we advise guys to use when they uh, check in with their Silas every day. And I've got guys, uh, if I even if I, the guys that I'm a Silas to, even if I can't answer the phone, they leave a check-in, a voicemail check-in. And, uh, you know, I got one guy who's a former Marine. He can, he can do the four points in, you know, a minute and 34 seconds, you know, <laughs> boom. I got another guy who, who go for six minutes. Doesn't matter. But let's, it's walking in the light. And then what I do is, uh, you know, I ask my guys to check in with me every day and I check in with my guy on a daily basis. And then I, uh, all the guys that I'm a silas to, uh, with one exception, all the guys that I'm a silas to are local to me. So I go for a one hour walk uh, with each of my guys each week for an extended conversation. And this sounds so redemptive for all of those years when nobody talked, nobody, yeah. nobody felt. Except to give a testimony mm. or to share a, a biblical insight. Now, I love to share a biblical insight. But if it doesn't come in the context of daily life, it's pretty useless. And daily life, even for the healthiest of us, also still includes active rebellion. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So can I be 
honest about my piracy because I'm still <laughs> yeah. a pirate. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And also that this consistency, this daily repetition sounds mm-hmm. like it has reconditioned you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And we do. We do. We try. Uh, I heard somebody say that really that that 90% of what we do in any given day is just the repetition of routine. It's habit. We have we have programmed mind and body to think and feel in certain ways. And yeah, those have to be retrained. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I am yeah, I am so grateful that that so many of those habit loops. Uh, are no longer active. Now I can reactivate them if I choose, but uh, they no longer. You know, I no longer unthinkingly go in that direction. Mm. Yeah, not to say I haven't had my missteps. Most recently, you know, um, <laughs> in the early years of my recovery, you know, it just. during those whitewater years after disclosure and Allie was coming to terms with reality and the extent of my betrayal and, and, uh, and dealing with her, her own trauma around that and her anger and disappointment. The fact she didn't trust me any farther. She could throw me that. uh, And, and it was up in the air as to whether we were at, you know, the future of the marriage was up in the air. I'm grateful to say that we just um, celebrated our 45th wedding anniversary and we're closer than we've ever been. And, mm. and Allie no longer regrets those first 20 years. She said she'd take them in a heartbeat to get what we have today. Wow. Um, but during those early years when it was tough and we really couldn't talk, we could go down to the pub and have a couple of Guinnesses and play cards now, when the church I grew up in, drinking was a sin and card playing was a sin. Both of them would send you to hell, right? Um, but it, oddly enough, strangely enough, you know, beer and cards kind of helped us get through. Um, and uh, when we started Samson, we learned that the meeting is important, but almost as important is the meeting after the meeting. So we have the one hour meeting at the church, and then we have the meeting after the meeting at the pub. We hang and talk, and and there were always some guys who drank and some guys who didn't, and I was one of the guys who drank. Now, what I have had to face, and and fairly recently, I mean, I've been, I think I've known it for about five years, but have really only grappled with it within the last one year. That um, that I began to lean way too much on alcohol, as a way not to deal with life on life's terms that what seemed to be a solution for a while and what seemed to be a help and what I have not only tolerated, but encouraged and defended and still would not, I'm not going to impose this on any other guy in Samson. I'm not telling any other Samson guy he's got to quit drinking, but for me, pretty clear. I need quit drinking. And guess what? I need help. Hmm. And guess what? I can't hide it minimize it right i gotta walk in the light about it now i'm grateful today i'm not only 
you know, sexually sober, but I'm sober from alcohol and life is a hell of a lot better. Right. And I have to, I do have to tell you this too. Um, I relapsed a number of times during the last 20 years. Thankfully, never, never was physically unfaithful to my wife again, but I relapsed on porn several times. And looking back, I always relapsed after drinking. Did I need any other reason to stop drinking? So, you know, I'm grateful uh, that I'm, at least I feel today, miles away from the edge uh, and living in a nice, you know, sense of freedom today. I don't want to get, I never want to take my freedom for granted. Uh, One thing I've learned, you know, I have this freedom and this freedom is priceless, but it's a fragile freedom. Uh, I keep it uh, by giving it away. I defend it with boundaries and brothers. Uh, and I've got to be humble enough every day to go out and pick it up like manna. Right? Mm. Yeah. One day at a time. That's it, baby. Yeah. Try to keep it for two or three days and it starts to rot. Yeah. Ain't that true. Yeah. Mm. But it's a great way to live. It really is. I'm so grateful. I'm if this addiction is what I, I now believe that God has allowed me to keep my addiction. He didn't just, you know, excise it, remove it completely, so that it never entered my mind again. He's allowed me to keep my vulnerability and lust to this day because He loves me. I think that He gave me the same. You know, when I said take it away. He gave me the same answer he gave the Apostle Paul when Paul begged on multiple occasions to be relieved of that painful thorn in the flesh, whatever his was. I have a sneaking suspicion it was sexual, but I can't prove it. Whatever it was, God said, "Mm, no, I know it hurts. Uh, And I didn't give it to you. But I love you too much to take it away because with it, you're weak and you know you're weak. And when you know you're weak, I can be strong. I believe that God has allowed me to keep my vulnerability to lust to this day because it's really the only lever in my life big enough to force me out of isolation and into honest relationship with other members of the body of Christ. You know, I said for years that I wanted to be freed from lust. Uh, But that's not really what I was asking. What I really wanted was to be morally self-sufficient. I wanted to be like God. I didn't want to have to join the human race. I didn't have to rely on anybody else. And I didn't want to have to show myself. I didn't want to show myself. And I'm grateful that God just didn't take it away. I'm grateful that I can't walk around as a successful Pharisee. He's shattered that, and I'm the, I'm the better for it, and I'm the better husband for it, I'm the better father for it, and I'm the better friend for it. Yeah, yeah, I'm grateful. I'm very grateful. Nate, that verse has probably been my favorite verse in the whole Bible for recovery. Mm-hmm. When Jesus says... My grace is sufficient for you. Yeah. For my power is made perfect in weakness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Paul says, therefore, in response to what he just said, 
I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There it is, baby. Man, I don't know why it took me so long to see it. And I'm wa- I, and I, we have to work uh, to do all we can to make that the central message as we, as we go to disciple people. I think yeah. disciple, discipling has, has taken the turn of, it, it's become, I don't know, indoctrinating or educating or, you know, ah. Enlisting. No. Yeah, that's right. No, get this. Get this. Yeah. Stop hiding. But here's the one rule, the one rule, the number one rule in recovery. Don't hide. <laughs> and I think, and I think, and I don't think you can get there as a Christian until you believe the gospel. Mm-hmm. I won't hide because I don't need to. Yeah. Yeah. And when I'm no longer hiding, man, that you, who knows? It's unbelievable what God can do. I'm astonished. You know, I worked hard to become a successful minister, and I have nothing to show for it during those years of active addiction. Gave up on the dream of ministry uh, and, and decided to walk in the light. It's unbelievable what's happened. Once we've tasted what it's like to stop hiding. Yeah. It's kind of addicting. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It is. It is in a good way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is kind of fun, I got to tell you, to get to a, go to one of those very respectable religious parties and be the guy who drops the turd in the punch bowl. You know what I mean? <laughs> I get that pleasure frequently. It's the a crass level, way of saying it. but yeah. <laughs> The level of vulnerability that I go to often makes people say, oh, how do you, how do you learn how to share so much? Or how do, you, yeah, yeah. how do you have the bravery to do that? And one of the reasons is because of people like you who have gone first and have been willing to drop the bomb and let (laughs) us drop our own little bombs in the aftermath so it doesn't sound so big. What happens here, the reason I do it, the reason I do it is because that will coax one or two desperate people out of the shadows. Everybody else pretend like they don't have a problem and maybe some of them don't. But just because I've said it, they won't step up right then, but they'll come to me later. Hey, can we talk? What I've realized is that when I tell my story, suddenly I become the safest person in the room. And that's my gift. Yeah. Yeah. And and I got to tell you, our culture is under such assault and our families, our marriages are in such distress. Our young men. I mean, it's it's we've got to do this for the sake of a generation. We've got to do this. And if you want to stop hiding, Mm. the doors are wide open. Mm. Come to the Samson Society. I'm putting the links in the show notes. (laughs) So everybody... In every part of the world, at any time of day or night, can show up and stop hiding. Yeah. And break the cycle and be loved. Oh, 
I will warn you, if you want to join the virtual meetings, you go to samsonsociety.com. You'll have to sign up for a newcomer meeting. There's at least one newcomer meeting every day. Uh, you have to have your video on. We're not going to let you into the virtual meetings because we're going to keep those groups completely safe. We're not going to let you in until we have a chance to meet you. And you'll learn more about us. We'll learn more about you. And once we're convinced that you're Samson material and, <laughs> and you've decided you want to join, you'll get the link that will get you in and you'll meet some of the greatest men in the world. And it is an adventure. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nate. Thanks, Drew. I've really enjoyed it. And what is your favorite thing about freedom from porn? Uh, freedom from fear. There used to be, if I was in my office, as I am right now, and Allie's in another part of the house, if I heard her say, Nate, this bolt of fear would shoot through me. And I, my first thing would be, what did she find out? What does she know? And, and that fear just dogged me. It wasn't just with Allie. It was mostly with her, but anybody else I, in church. You know. I have freedom from fear today. And I come when I'm called because people know me. Yeah. And now you have that freedom in a Samson meeting of saying, hi, I'm Nate. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And thanks for, thanks for what you're doing. Uh, I'm really excited about the, the husband material podcast and you're on a, you're on a great mission, man. Thanks Nate for everyone else out there. Always remember you are God's beloved son in you. He is well-pleased.